The Cambridge Film Show on Cambridge 105 Radio. Hello, you're listening to the Cambridge 105 Radio and welcome to the Cambridge Film Show, your one-stop shop for film chat and all things great and small in cinemas and on streaming. Hope everyone's recovered from the beautiful bank holiday weekend. Uh, So what better time to catch up on all the best of the local listings? I'm Lorcan O'Neill and with me today is a torrent of talent uh, with Matt Walsh. Hi. uh, Luke Irwin. Good afternoon. Henry Jordan. Hello. Will Johnson. Hello. And Alfie Hudson. Good afternoon. On the slate today, Nintendo adds their seal of approval to the new family film, The Super Mario Brothers Movie. Guy Ritchie brings us a no-doubt grounded look into international espionage and Operation Fortune Ruse de Guerre. Uh, Russell Crowe takes, supernatu- takes a supernatural turn as the celebrity cleric, the Pope's exorcist. Ben Affleck flexes his directing chops to tell the story of Nike's landmark deal to sponsor one Michael Jordan. And we wrap up with a deliciously over-the-top, hopefully, Nick Cage in reinvent- Dracula reinvention Renfield. Uh, so, wasting absolutely no time, let's go. Okay. Not sure if you know who I am, but I'm about to rule the world. Wow, uh, yay. But there's one problem. There's a human, has a mustache, just like you. <laughs> Do you think I know every human being with a mustache wearing an identical outfit with a hat with the letter of his first name on it? <laughs> because I don't. Bowser is coming. Together, we are going to stop that monster. How? Look at us. We're adorable. Oh, I got this. No problem. Yes! Come on, Mario! Our big adventure begins now! Ah! Get it off, get it off, get it off! Illumination, the animation studio behind the Minions phenomenon and Nintendo, join efforts to introduce the Super Mario universe to the big screen. While on a job, Brooklyn plumbers Mario and Luigi are sucked into the fantastical Mushroom Kingdom, veritably veritably littered with colorful characters, each chock full of ambition and adventure. Um, Will, uh, critics have kind of lambasted this little children's film, um, for the most part. Um, Do you think it'll be a fan favorite? Um, I think it will be, because when I first saw the trailer months ago, I was quite unsure about it. Uh, cause I thought, hey, it's going to ruin my childhood. <laughs> um, but then as the month progressed, I kind of warmed to it. And once I sat down in the cinema, I absolutely loved it. Cool. Um, Matt, uh, lots, of, lots of characters and lots of story beats. Uh, did it all fit into one strong narrative? For me, the problem with this film is one of context, because Super Mario doesn't really have a plot. Mario is just the stand-in generic Nintendo protagonist. He, he plays golf, he plays tennis, he jumps on things. <laughs> there isn't a plot to follow, so therefore when you try and put it into a film, you've got a load of things that don't really make sense as a coherent world. And there's only so many times you can say, oh, because it's in the video game, before you start losing people. I think if you're a big fan of Mario and you've played all the games, then you will enjoy seeing all the Easter eggs. But otherwise, you'll just be a bit bamboozled by, oh, why are there floating blocks? Why is he driving on a rainbow? Why, if they're trying to get somewhere quickly, does he need to paint a personalized go-kart to get there? So I think, for me, it just doesn't work in that sense. Like, how does this fit with the real world? Mm. 
So more, you want a more kind of real world. So you want the 93 version then. <laughs> <laughs> now, I haven't actually had the pleasure of seeing that one, but not necessarily that bad. But just, just we'll take the Sonic movie, for instance, where Sonic is equal to Mario in the sense of not really having a plot, but the Sonic movie at least grounded it in some sort of reality and Sonic was a character that existed in the real world whereas Mario they try and do that by putting him in sort of Brooklyn at the start but then it rapidly just dissolved devolves into oh underneath Brooklyn there's a, a weird magical place where nothing makes sense I think the further it gets from the Sonic movie the more I'll, I'll be happy to be honest <laughs> um, Alfie, uh, there's, there was a lot of criticism around Chris Pratt being voiced uh, as Mario over the original fella. I can't think of his name right now. Um, but this is uh, a star-studded cast. you got Jack Black as Bowser, you got Anya Taylor-Joy as Princess Peach. How, do you have any criticisms? How did Chris Pratt do? Did, the, did all the voices seem appropriate and did they come together well? Well, when the voice casts were first announced, like a year ago, I think, um, I literally thought it was a joke. Like, I saw a picture of it on Twitter, and I'm like, okay, people are just memeing. But then I looked into it, and yeah, Mar Mario's voiced by Chris Pratt, Charlie Day, Jack Black. So I at least thought it was going to be a fun voice cast. It wouldn't, I don't think it would, like, fit the characters very well, but at least it would be funny to hear Chris Pratt doing the, it's a me. <laughs> um, but he didn't really do that. I mean, he did it at the beginning once as a joke, but then he just kind of uses his normal voice for most of the film, which is a little disappointing. But, I don't know, the, the voice cast wasn't nearly as bad as I was expecting it to be. I feel like it was a bit distracting at first with Chris Pratt, Charlie Day. Um, but by the time they got into the Mushroom Kingdom, you start to get used to it. And I think the best part of the film is definitely Jack Black as Bowser, who brings like a musical side to Bowser we've never seen in the games before. And I don't know, he just he sounded a lot like Bowser. I felt like the only voice that didn't fit the character at all was um, Seth Rogen as Donkey Kong. Mm. Like, I'm a big fan of Donkey Kong. I've played Donkey Kong Country games. And Seth Rogen is not what I picture in my head Donkey Kong to sound like. Um, but apart from that, I felt like the voice cast did a pretty good job. Well, I think every animated film has a legal obligation to put Seth Rogen in at some point. <laughs> yeah. um, Henry, the... We kind of mentioned earlier, so the critics, bleh, very bad ratings, um, $300 million plus opening weekend, and it's still, it's yet to open in certain territories. Um, what what do you think is causing that disparity? Well, I, I think the thing is, is that if you kind of approach this film with like critical faculties, and it's, it's pretty easy to dismiss, like a lot of Illumination films are, where like, uh, I remember we did uh, Minions Rise of Gru um, last year, and we were all kind of like, yeah, you know, it's fun. None of us were like, this is a brilliant movie that, like, changes the game. But, like, Illumination are good at making kind of, like, shiny 90-minute movies that will, like, keep people satisfied. And I think critics are very good at picking that out. Um, I was not um, about five minutes in when they're in the Punch-Out Pizzeria and then the startup noise for the GameCube played. I felt my critical faculties disappear, and I was just like on pure bliss for 90 minutes I was like that's from Mario Kart that's from Mario Odyssey oh my god and I was just giddy I felt like I'd just eaten a whole bag of pick and mix and was like <laughs> hyper for 90 minutes and by the end I was like wow I don't know if that was good but I had a <laughs> lovely time there's, there's certainly a lot of wonderful musical cues. Um, there are certain musical cues that I was not a fan of did it, how did everyone find the score I thought it was quite brilliant. Um, obviously, Jack Black brought his own li little song story about Princess Peach, and obviously there was the Diddy, was it the Diddy Kong rap, was it? Donkey yeah. Kong rap, yes. Um, so I actually liked it. Plus, brought back the nostalgia of all the old games, 
um, Mario Kart, obviously, which um, I don't think Matt was too much a fan of, but um, you know, it just just brings great emphasis emphasis to it. How, how did you feel about the sort of the licensed songs? I mean, I, I know that the music from the games was great, but I felt the licensed soundtrack choices were very cliche. Sort of, oh, Mario's doing a training montage. Let's do holding out for a hero, or we're about to drive. Let's do take on me. It's just I feel like we need to be a bit more inventive and the target age of this audience is kids like we need music that kids of today will like not kids from the 90s yeah no that that the, the pop music stings and the needle drops definitely took me out of it especially because you've got you're utilizing this fantastic score and some of them are really well reorchestrated and then just, just to have these horrendous pop songs start after they go into the mushroom kingdom i found very bizarre um so i think i was impressed with it's a 90-minute film, like Henry's mentioned. It's a, I've, I found it a breeze. And they fit in a lot, presumably because they want to make their little spin-offs. Um, but do they give enough time to each kind of character to generate? So you've got Luigi, presumably they're going to do like a haunted house thing with Luigi, and Donkey Kong will probably have his own adventure. Is there enough in these characters, do you think, set up in this film to justify those kind of spin-offs? I don't know. I feel like there's kind of bits and pieces. There's... um. Uh, a Luma from Mario Galaxy who's introduced who's like one of the comic highlights who's just mm. this complete nihilist who's like death is coming for us all <laughs> hooray um, which is great and like setting up the Luma in this world is like well that sets off Mario Galaxy and then we, we haven't just got a Mario world we got a we got a whole world of worlds that we can do and so yeah like again there's this kind of childish glee to the film and I left it and I thought like for pretty much the first time in any video game movie I left it and I was like I could watch another one of those. I could do a sequel. I, could, I agree, actually. Um, obviously, each character has their own adventure, but then obviously, if you wait till the very end, there's a nice little, I will say, Easter egg, mm. which will leave it open for Mario 2, if there will be. Obviously, it depends on crowd um, appreciation. I, th- I think there's enough here for, for more Mario. And there probably will be, because it's probably going to be one of the biggest animated films of all time, judging by the money it's made. You know, it's already... Um, become like the highest grossing video game adaptation so, and Sonic got a uh, bunch of sequels so I'm sure this is gonna come back and I wouldn't mind seeing more in terms of kind of because obviously there'll be a lot of parents bringing their kids to this probably the parents more eager than than the children <laughs> do you think because the, the they do fit a lot into 90 minutes and it does jump from plot point to plot point do you think that'll irritate kind of the other parents bringing their kids will they be able to focus I, I think that well I, I actually did take my three-year-old daughter to see this and she loved Princess Peach and that was something that kind of did annoy me about this movie because Mario has no right to be the protagonist of this movie like why <laughs> do they need Mario to do the things that they do when Princess Peach is clearly more capable of doing all the things that Mario does. I mean, he, he's only able to achieve anything when he manages to get hold of the performance-enhancing substances, uh, also known as power-ups. <laughs> so yeah, I feel like it should have been Princess Peach's movie. She didn't need Mario. I'm sure Princess Peach's movie is coming. Don't worry, Matt. <laughs> um, but um, just out of curiosity, did anyone catch the 3D screening? What the, were there any thoughts on... The, was it worth seeing in 3D? Did it add anything? Yeah, so I saw the 3D because you'd seen it before me, Lorcan. and you I went, did, yeah. You said, if you see it, you've got to see it in 3D. And I was sceptical because my last 3D experience was Avatar 2, and I uh, did not enjoy that experience as much. I was like, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to trust you. And it, I think, again, aids that kind of cotton candy bliss that the film is going for of just really losing yourself in the world and kind of disengaging the critical faculties and going like, well, it's just a bit of fun, isn't it? And, you know, I think it probably is still good in 2D, but it's one of the rare times where I would say, actually, 
if your only option is a 3D screening, it's still definitely worth checking out. Good. Uh, yeah, and it, I mean, I saw the 3D and it was it was still super colourful, so I dread to think how colourful it would have been without that. <laughs> um, so I think it's safe to say no ruined childhoods. One one critic slightly on, on, the, on the fence. But uh, the Super Mario Brothers is a certificate PG and it's playing at all three Cambridge cinemas. Uh, next up, it's an international affair. As a private contractor, you possess a unique set of skills. You said it was clear. I said the front was clear. Ah. Front, back, right, wrong. Anyway, shall we? I have another job for you. So what we got? Greg Simmons. It's a billionaire arms dealer. Oh, a lot of very serious faces up here, aren't there? You can't catch this fish with conventional lures. I'm sorry? The lure being? Danny Francesco. The movie star. Greg Simmons' favorite movie star. And how do we get him? Blackmail. Who's to care? Very good. Carry on. The world needs you for your greatest role yet. Who are you? I mean an eclectic cast, including Jason Statham, Aubrey Plaza, Josh Hartnett, Carrie Elways, and Hugh Grant, lead this thriller loaded with quips, tick kicks, and flips as operative Orson Fortune must lead a ragtag group to recover a mysterious item being sold on the black market, which may pose a worldwide threat. Um, Henry, uh, director Guy Ritchie seems to be... He, he bounces a lot around genres a lot at the minute. Um kind of his he goes he ditched to the gentleman he did an aladdin film he's going on to hercules now um how does he how does he fare returning to the spy games i think this is his first one since man from uncle yeah i mean i i kind of part way through this film uh, my brain was starting to wander and i was i was thinking about fast and furious uh, in relation to guy ritchie because both are kind of Guy Ritchie's career in the Fast and Furious franchise both started kind of late 90s, early 2000s, and they all started with, like, relatively humble beginnings where, like, you know, uh, Snatch and Lockstock are just, like, a bunch of geezers walking around and, like, punching each other. Fast and Furious was just about, like, stealing CD players. And then both have kind of, like, escalated into this world of, like, whoa, international espionage and, like, crazy stunts, whoa. And the thing that I was really getting upset about was that Fast and Furious does it so well where every time they like crank that amp up and then add a new amp to crank that amp up they really really delight me and I was so bored by this I think the bigger that Guy Ritchie's like scope gets the less interesting his films become I was just yeah he doesn't seem to have a grip on action anymore like I remember really enjoying the action of his earlier films like Snatch has a lot of very kind of visceral like you know fight scenes in it and this it all felt very kind of like limp and weak i think what really was the kicker for me was about halfway through i realized that their whole plot about needing this actor to come in and be like the main man of their mission i went oh no this is the plot of team america <laughs> where they've brought in an actor and they're like that's some of the best acting i've seen in my life yeah <laughs> and from that point on the film was unsalvageable for me <laughs> Which doesn't really add anything to the plot, no. like having seen it now and thinking back. Um, Luke, like I mentioned, it's an ensemble cast. It's a very eclectic cast. Um, Aubrey Plaza, it seems like she's playing her character from Parks and Recs, trying to play like the savvy tech whiz of the group. Like, wh wh Did this ensemble gel for you? I, th I think that's a bit harsh on Aubrey Plaza, if only because I think she was one of the few parts of the film that I really didn't take exception to. Um, 
I think Jason Statham has been in a couple of these Guy Ritchie films recently. I used to love the Stath, but Guy <laughs> Ritchie doesn't know how to use him. I think Statham has a, when he's in his best, when he's doing these transporter films, there's sort of an earnestness to his performance where no matter how silly things get, like when you picture those scenes when he's like rolling around in oil, fighting people with a <laughs> tie on, and you're thinking, what the hell is going on? But it all seems to gel through um, the Statham persona. But he, in the Guy Ritchie films, he's sort of moulded into more of a traditional action star, and he's quite dull and he's sort of delivering these very Guy Ritchie lines and it's just, it's a real shame to see what what's happened to him. When you, I mean we talk, Henry was just comparing Fast and Furious when you look at Jason Statham in Fast 6 and Fast 7 what fun he's having there as for the rest of the cast um, so Aubrey Plaza, I mean she is like I'm hesitant to call it a late career renaissance because she's 38. Yeah. Um, but like for women in Hollywood, I guess that's that's considered a late career. But when you consider someone like she's still not a witch, that's good. <laughs> <laughs> when you consider someone like Hugh Grant, who's sort of going through this late career thing, mm. uh, renaissance. But to say that she's doing Parks and Rec, I guess maybe that's that's part of the persona. But I think she's really branched out and does done some really interesting choices. Um, she was in Black Bear a couple of years mm. ago, which was really solid drama. And she'd done Ingrid Goes West, which is comedy meets drama. Um, until she won a SAG, didn't she, for White Lotus quite recently. Yes, yeah. And then last year, or maybe earlier this year, Emily the Criminal, which was a really proper dramatic role that she was in. Um, and I think it was nice to see her being having having a nice time. Um, <laughs> like mix, Mixing comedy and action. Um and Hugh Grant rounding out the cast. Um, I heard him being interviewed recently where he said he wasn't very comfortable doing that, you know, the charming, blinky rom-com role yes. in the 90s, and he feels like he's uh, letting loose a lot more now, um, doing these sort of more character-driven roles. And I'm, I'm glad that he's having fun watching yes. this role, because I, I certainly wasn't. <laughs> I mean, he's basically he's doing the exact same thing that he did in The Gentleman with mm. um, Guy Ritchie a couple of years ago. Um, and he sort of, it's this sort of campy kind of weird nasally role where it's just infuriating. <laughs> like when, when you see him, he was in Dungeons and Dragons a couple yeah. weeks ago, and that was a really fun performance, and it was a similar kind of creepy villain role, but it captures so much more of what people like about Hugh Grant, whereas this is like he's trying to be everything that Hugh Grant isn't in a way that's annoying. Well, I think that's 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 his like that's his joie de vivre now is just playing the exact opposite. Because he was the same in um, even some from Padding, Paddington Bear seems to have been a bug that bit him, and he can't get away from this now. Yeah, I, but I think he's having he's more charming in those roles. Like even in Dungeons and Dragons, he's a he's a meanie, mm. but there's there's still that glint in his eye. <laughs> oh, I think I see a glint of something in this one as well, <laughs> um, Matt. It's. It came across as a very eager script to me. Uh, was it all a bit try-hard? Well, you know, you know what I'm thinking is I'm wondering whether Guy Ritchie is a secret Adam Sandler fan because <laughs> <laughs> Adam Sandler's got a very sweet deal with Netflix where he gets paid vast amounts of money to go to exotic locations and film not very good movies with his friends. And maybe Guy Ritchie thought, I'd quite like a piece of this. So gets his friends together. I mean, I think a lot of these people are Guy Ritchie regulars. And he's just gone to a load of quite nice locations and done some fairly low-stakes spy heist nonsense. Uh, I didn't ever feel any sort of tension or threat or investment in the characters. 
but in, I think it's an okay movie for streaming because if you check your phone for 30 seconds or 30 minutes, you can then look up and you'd be like, okay, yeah, they're just they're trying to get the thing and Jason Statham's doing his Jason Statham thing. And, you know, it's very easy to drop in and drop out and really lose nothing. I was kind of intrigued when it started because you kind of do just jump straight in. You're like, oh, okay, we're jumping straight in. This is pacey. But then we're pacing to nowhere, kind of pacey like being on a treadmill is pacey. Um, yeah, I, I wasn't a fan of this. I don't, it's not terrible, but there's better things you could be doing with your time. Unless you've seen almost every other movie, there's something better <laughs> that you could be watching than uh, Operation Fortune. Snooze the gear. <laughs> oh, there we go. That's the moment of the episode. Um, well, you mentioned streaming. I mean, th- there's a lot of plug and effects. There's a distinct lack of extras and kind of repeated use of. Um, like stunt doubles. Is it because of streaming? We think it's it kind of looks, it has that kind of cheap sheen to it. I don't know. I think this is just kind of what a lot of these mid-budget films look like now. I mean, I don't think originally it was actually intended for streaming. Mm. Um, there's a lot of people who might think like, hang on, this film seems like familiar. It was meant to come out a year ago, but was put like on hold because it's got some Ukrainian bad guys in it, um, which I think was probably a wise decision. And they've just decided to kind of like just drop it now on Amazon. Mm. Um, but yeah, I can't help but think that even if it had come out a year ago, it would still feel outdated, and we'd still be looking at all of these effects and going, this is pretty ropey. I think it's just, yeah, it's not designed for streaming, but streaming, like Matt said, kind of feels like the natural home for like the geezer teaser. <laughs> well, when I, when I mentioned that kind of Guy Ritchie's hopping around genres, I, I feel like he might be diluting his like core audience, the Lockstock crowd. Um, do you think people looking for just a classic Guy Ritchie romp, do you think they'll be satisfied by this? No, no way, no way. I mean, th- there's just nothing here that is anywhere close to the peak Guy Ritchie experience of Lockstock and Snatch. Um, or, or even the sort of Sherlock Holmes movies, which were really fun and had energy. This doesn't have energy. It's It's a little bit like Dungeons and Dragons in that you've just got the central cast and they seem to just be going on little mini adventures together, but if Dungeons and Dragons didn't have any of the humour or warmth. I actually disagree. I mean, it's a, it's a low bar given how far I think Guy Ritchie's fallen since those, you know, like if you're, st- if you're a fan of him now, given mm. some of the films that he's made, I don't think this film was any worse than Wrath of Man or The Gentleman. So I think if you yeah. like those films, I think this offers more of the same in terms of tone, mm. if not necessarily scope it's kind of, yeah it's it's especially with a gentleman because i couldn't understand why anyone would like that but there's it's, it's kind of like a michael <laughs> well it's kind of like a michael bay thing we just watching it's like who who would enjoy this and then they, they clearly clearly are targeting an, an audience that um they know what they're going for um i mean with obviously mission impossible's the franchise is booming right now there's a lot of talk about the new bond it sounds like it's going to get announced fairly soon um do you think there's room for like a kind of spy, a new kind of spy parody that doesn't take itself too seriously? Is this that franchise? I, I don't think this is even really a parody. It's it's kind of too low energy for that, mm. and I, I don't think there's enough here to build a franchise. I mean, if you just you can make a spy movie with Jason Statham and call it the next Fortune movie, but it wouldn't gain anything from being connected to this because there's just so little here to be connected to. It, it, it's a very empty experience. It does feel like it was set up to be 
a franchise. I mean, even the title, you know, Operation mm. Fortune. The fact that the main character is called Fortune. It would be like a James <laughs> Bond film being called Operation Bond. Yes. <laughs> it's nonsense as a title. And they're clearly, like, every film now with the, having a subtitle in it to sort of keep the door open. Mm. Um, there might, I mean, worse films have had sequels. Um, perhaps not necessarily streamers getting sequels. Um, but in terms of it's not, it's not doing anything particularly original. I mean, Jason Statham already did a spy parody in Spy, mm. an equally badly titled film. <laughs> well, let's, let's say something nice. Is there anything worth watching Operation Fortune for? I mean, Jason Statham has a few nice fights. Mm. Like, I, he's a really good screen fighter, and he beats the living daylights out of a few goons, which I which I enjoyed. It's it's not John Wick level, but Statham can clearly clearly knows what he's doing. And if, I think if you're if you're kind of wait, can't wait for Christmas, then Hugh Grant's a lovely bit of ham. If you want to just <laughs> get that in early, um, I will just quickly say because um, we had quite a few releases yesterday uh, that we just couldn't catch them all. But Henry, I believe you watched uh, a film called One Fine Morning, yes, um, from director Mia, Mia Hansen Love, mm-hmm. um, starring Leia Sadu. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? What are your thoughts on it? Yeah, so it's like a it's a smaller release, which I think is why a lot of us haven't gotten to it. Um, it's from Mubi, so it's in cinemas at the moment, and it will end up on Mubi in a month or two. Um, I think that it is just so lovely. Um, a lot of the stuff that we're talking about at the moment is like it's quite high stakes, or it's quite violent, or it's just quite masculine, and this is a really nice counterpoint to it. Um, it's a film about just a kind of ordinary French woman in her thirties dealing with a kind of new love with a married man and also her father who's got this kind of degenerative disease and that should make it really really heavy and quite an unpleasant watch but i was just so charmed by it the whole way it's a very it's a movie that feels effortless and i think that that is one of the very hardest things to do in cinema it's just such a breeze to kind of be with for a hundred minutes. Uh, be, I believe Mia Hansen Love. Uh, she's a big fan of um, Ingmar Bergman, and her her last one was uh, Bergman Island, which I believe we reviewed on the show. If you want to see the podcast, um, so given that, is this kind of is this a heady affair? Is, it, is are people going to go in and kind of be like challenged, or is it more like you say, kind of a breeze? No, I mean it's not. You know, Bergman Island. There's a lot of stuff in there that is very kind of. Uh, for cinephiles who are like, aha, yes, well, this is a reference to that, or this is kind of playing off on that, and there's, like, dueling narratives in that, whereas, you know, I don't think you need to have any kind of experience or, like, real great understanding of, like, film as a medium or whatever to get this film. It's a film that really lays itself out there, and everything that's there is just kind of... It's inviting you to come and look at. There's no... There is no difficulty in this film, which, again, it goes to some dark places, but it never asks too much of you it only asks you to bring what you are willing to and how does Leah Sidhu transition because she's been in the Bond films recently how's it how's it what is it like to see her transition back into like a nice calm kind of a really character driven role again she completely disappears into it and that is so much harder than it seems um I know that she's said uh, Leah Sidhu has said that this is kind of the first time that she's really played like a normal person in a film and yeah, you feel that. You just kind of, you're not watching it going like, oh, it is, you know, Bond star Leia Seydoux doing her thing. You're like, no, this is just some normal woman just going about her day. Um, you, yeah, you believe every single part of the film and Leia Seydoux is a big reason for that. Wonderful. Well, um, One Fine Morning is just at 15 and it's playing at the Arts Picture House. Cambridge 105 Radio. 
Right, I think I'll have that one. And, oh yes, I like him. Oh, and her. I should put that one on, really, shouldn't I? Oh, hello. It's Sue Marchant here. I'm just getting ready for my show on Saturdays on Cambridge 105 Radio between 2 and 4. I'll be playing you my own selection of music and chatting to a guest or two. I do hope you'll join me. There's the doorbell. Sue Marchant's selection, online whenever you want it. And Saturday at 2 on Cambridge 105 Radio. Suicide can be prevented and we can all play our part. One question can save a life. One friend in particular who had been really supportive and been trying to keep me going and keep making contact and keep making me talk and trying to keep me going, realised something was wrong and was trying to contact me. Asking about suicide won't prompt someone to kill themselves. In fact, it will probably help. If you're worried about someone, would you ask directly about suicide? I kind of got to the point, because of all the support that she'd given me, and I could see that, you know, she was desperately trying to get hold of me on my phone, that I did eventually answer her call. Learn how to have a life-saving conversation at stopsuicidepledge.org. Make the pledge and sign up for a Stop Suicide training workshop. I'd ask, would you? Nick Wombs Professional Painting and Decorating Services is your local award-winning decorating business with a great reputation. Our professional and friendly team can cover all aspects of decorating for domestic, commercial and industrial properties. So whether it's a bedroom makeover or an entire office block that needs repainting, we'll get the job done on budget and on time. Check us out on Facebook or Instagram at Nick Wombs Professional Painting and Decorating Services to see pictures of our work or call us today on 07794-516-291. The Cambridge Film Show on Cambridge 105 Radio. You're listening to Cambridge 105 Radio and this is the Cambridge Film Show, our fortnightly roundup of the latest releases. I'm Lorcan and with me again are Matt, Henry, Luke and Alfie. Uh, next up, we're off for an off-season treat. Whatever you do, you only do because God allows it. Father Gabriele Amorit. On the night of June 4th, you performed an exorcism. That was not an exorcism. The majority of cases do not require an exorcism. 98% are recommended by him to doctors and psychiatrists. The other 2%, I call it evil. We have more questions for you, Father Amort. Based on the memoirs of Father Gabriel Amort, though I suspect that claim might be questioned in a moment, um, Russell Crowe takes center stage as the chief exorcist to the Vatican who is tasked with saving a child from possession and incidentally uncovers a secret plot in The Pope's Exorcist. Uh, Matt, is this more than just another, another exorcist clone? 
I no, maybe it is just another Exorcist clone, but it's still a lot of fun. I mean, this film kind of entered my radar when I saw that the International Association of Exorcists had condemned it. Uh, I'm not sure whether them condemning it or praising it would make me more likely to see it, but just the fact that they're aware of it did uh, did make me kind of take notice. So it's, it's directed by Julius Avery, who did Overlord a few years ago, which is sort of a fun, splattery Nazi zombies movie. Uh, he then went on to do Samaritan, which was a bit of Sylvester Stallone rubbish on Amazon Prime. Th- this, for me, is a real return to the Overlord promise that he showed because this film just goes completely mad by the end. I mean, it's supposedly based on Father Gabriel Morth's memoirs, but if this is what he's writing down, <laughs> then uh, I'm not sure I believe it. Yeah, the, the ending in particular is just pure splatterhouse insanity, which, which I loved. I thought, yeah, Russell Crowe was brilliant throughout when he's being sort of mocked by the possessed boy who says, I'm your worst nightmare priest, to which Russell Crowe responds, my worst nightmare is France winning the World Cup. And it's just, just the dialogue is just fun. Like that, That's the, the level of tone which I was here for. In Russell, the cameras are rolling now. <laughs> yeah, Russell Crowe sort of turned up and said, I'm just basically going to do what I want in this film. I'll speak Italian as and when it suits me. Uh, he, he does br- brilliant things like just riding his Vespa from Vatican City all the way to Spain. And uh, yeah, there's some light Da Vinci Code intrigue when he's sort of investigating the mysteries of the haunted abbey b- before it all goes completely mad. Uh, I, I think this film was a lot of fun. As long as you don't have any particular affection for the Catholic Church, I think you will enjoy this movie. I th- apparently the Vespa thing was Russell Crowe's idea as well. <laughs> so speaking of Russell Crowe, um, I mean, Henry, does, does he have the ability to carry a horror film of this ilk? Oh, I mean... Absolutely not, and it's wonderful. <laughs> um, and this is this is another quality entry in the Exorcist franchise, uh, ongoing and completely unrelated to the other Exorcist films. Um, it is just, I should say up front, I think this is probably the worst film I've seen all year. It's also of all the films we're doing this week, the one that I'm most likely to buy on Blu-ray and gather my friends around, and be like, no, 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 you've got to see this. It is turbo trash. Russell Crowe, yeah, like Matt said, did seem to have kind of turned up and gone, no, I'm going to do what I want. They're like, Russell, you don't have an Italian accent. He goes, yes, I do, of course. Um, Back when um, the cinemas opened, like, briefly in August, kind of after the the first lockdown, um, there was a film that came out called Unhinged, which starred Mm. Russell Crowe as a man who, I think, through means of car and hammer, wanted to murder this mother and her child. Mm. That was the plot of it. It was 90 minutes, and that was the film that made me go, we're back! I am ready to be back at the movies. And this has a similar thing of just being absolute turbocharged nonsense. The kind of stuff that, in our day and age, should have probably gone straight to streaming. And thank God it did not. (laughs) This is the kind of thing that really deserves to be in the cinema, and... At the end, they set up, and I am not joking, 199 sequels. I will be here for every single one of those sequels, as long as Russell Crowe and his teeny tiny Ferrari Vespa make it with him. Well, there's always room for quality schlock in the cinemas. So I, I, I gasped momentarily because I, I saw the Franco Nero Please the Pope, and that's yeah. tremendously exciting for me. Um, Matt, uh, 
Would you, do you agree? Is it is it entertaining, Schlock? Are you are you ready for a franchise? I'm absolutely ready for a franchise, and um, yeah, I'll, I'll definitely watch more of these films. But I I would disagree with Henry a little bit in that part of what I enjoyed so much about this was because it doesn't start out as the turbo trash insanity that it ends up as, and that kind of sort of lulls you into a false sense of security because the film opens with Russell Crowe doing what appears to be an exorcism and then afterwards he says it's not really an exorcism, I was just doing that because the guy's mentally ill and I was giving him a bit of theatre I was like, okay, so Russell Crowe he he understands that the majority of exorcist cases, 98% just need some sort of mental health support but the other 2%, that's where the pure evil lies And, and yeah, so it starts off quite measured and quite sensible, and then the insanity just builds when when he starts kind of investigating the secrets of the abbey and finds like a, a sort of secret underground tomb with uh, links to the Inquisition before coming back for the just total, total insanity of the ending, which is just one of the best things I've seen at the cinema in, in a long time. I'd like to point out that the, the measured and reasonable start that Matt is talking about is a scene which ends with Russell Crowe taking a shotgun to a pig. <laughs> this is where the film starts as like, well, no, we're being quite reasonable here, <laughs> and it goes up. <laughs> well, I mean, I, 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 I sincerely hope the secret is that Russell Crowe just discovers that the Catholic Church had something to do with the Inquisition. <laughs> um, is, I mean, how is the film interested in at all in digging into the activities of the Vatican, or is that just uh, the, the film, the Vatican doesn't want you to see that marketing ploy. I don't think it's being serious. I think it's Da Vinci Code level mm. stuff, like you know, ground like a big conspiracy. Like, what if the Inquisition wasn't actually just the Catholic Church being awful, but what if there was a demon who was possessing like the head Inquisitor, and it was actually the devil the whole time? You know, this this kind of level of well, okay. they've got to they've got to get out if anyone yeah. pushes too hard. Um, I'll just I'll just throw this out. There's five credited screenwriters, not including um, Father Amort himself, uh, whose uh, memoirs he's based on. Uh, does it feel like one complete film, at least? Or does it feel like five different people wrote this script? No, it feels like more than five people. Oh, dear. You could have told me that 20 people wrote this. They'd be like, yeah, it's fair. I would like to shake every one of their hands. Um... Well, I think it's a resounding guilty pleasure. Turbo Trash Insanity, as Matt has described it. The Pope's Exorcist is a certificate 15, uh, and it's playing at The View and the Lights Cinemas. Uh, now, we're looking at some real hang time. 1984 has been a tough year. Our sales are down, our growth is down. Sonny, I brought you in here to grow the basketball business. People don't know what the hell a Nike is. What's a Converse? NBA All-Star Shoe. There's nothing cool about Nike. You would have to have a pretty compelling pitch. I can tell them the one thing the other companies can't compete with. Our basketball division is terrible. I do not love it. This is where you come up with a brilliant idea that no one else can see. Let's hear it. I got it. I found him. Who's that? Jesus? Can't afford it. I'm willing to bet my career on one guy. My name's Sonny Vaccaro. I'm with Nike. Do you typically make it a habit of showing up at people's front doors unannounced? I don't like to take no for an answer. Oh, man. Matt Damon and Ben Affleck pair up again on screen, this time to tell the 80s-drenched tale of Nike's journey to make a name for itself by risking it all to sign an unknown NBA rookie, Michael Jordan, to the brand. Chris Tucker also makes a welcome return to the big screen with Viola Davis starring as Michael Jordan's mother. Um, oh, who can I go to for this one? Uh, Will, um, was this a feel-good boost? 
Um, well, I thought it was funny and heartwarming. Obviously, it's a biography of Nike Air Jordan, who's actually failing and losing to Converse and Adidas in the basketball market. Um, but I think what I most liked about it was the montage at the at the beginning. Nice little 80s feel. Made me feel old. But you know what? I am old. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and the soundtrack brought, a lot, brought back a lot of memories. And I caught myself singing through the movies. And I hope nobody actually wanted to punch me in the face for that. Um... Within this movie, you only you only see minimal Michael Jordan, but it's still a great watch. But it's more like a frenemies movie between Matt Damon and Ben Affleck because he directs it. He directed, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so it seemed more like a frenemies movie, but still a great turn by Viola Davis, who has shown a great acting turn. Obviously, Ender's Game, different genre, The Help, Woman King, and Suicide Squad. So I believe that. It's a great movie. And all around, yeah. thumbs up. Um, Matt, would you... Uh, the film's about a shoe. Would you recommend it to anyone outside of kind of the sporting fandom? Because is it accessible to general audiences, would you say? I, I think that because ultimately you could, if you were being uncharitable, view this as a piece of corporate propaganda. And if you're going to take that that viewpoint, then there's nothing that could really convince you otherwise. But... Uh, I was lucky enough to have listened to the audiobook Shoe Dog before seeing this, which was about the founding of Nike. And then you can sort of see this film as a continuation of that real underdog story. I mean, Nike is ubiquitous mega company now, but back then they were in third place and dropping. And yeah, I just, yeah, an underdog story is always entertaining and fun, especially when you've got so many great actors having a lot of fun with their performances I, I really enjoyed Chris Messina as David Falk, the Jordan's agent, <laughs> who does a brilliant uh, a little bit like Tom Cruise in Tropic Thunder, screaming down the phone about all the horrible things he's going to do to Matt Damon for daring to circumvent him and go to the Jordans directly yeah, I, I really enjoyed this, this was definitely the best film I've seen in the past fortnight, fantastic musical scores, in, in real contrast to Mario, where mm. The musical choices just felt very arbitrary. In this, it just really kind of gets you in that 80s groove. And, you know, you might say there's too many little montages, but I don't think you can ever have too many montages if they're fun and if they're helping you to get in the mood and get in, get in with the characters. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. I think if you have knowledge of Nike and Michael Jordan, you'll enjoy it more. But there's enough here if, if you don't to enjoy it without that prior knowledge. I was just happy to finally learn how to say Nike, to be honest. <laughs> um, Henry, we, we kind of talked about this um, fairly recently, where that there's, there's not a lot of people talking about this film. I haven't really heard anyone talk about it. Um, and the last time there was a pretty well-reviewed film by a, helmed by a competent director... Uh, that kind of fell by the wayside for the most part, I think, was The Last Duel, which also starred Matt yeah. Damon and Ben Affleck. Have those, do you think those two have just, is that an eye-rolling trope to pair those two? Do you think that they've just kind of lost their spark? Yeah, I don't know. Maybe there's something where kind of a little while ago it might have been like, hey, it's, it's Ben Affleck and Matt Damon back together. You know, they've done great work before. They're all buddies. This is good. I wonder if for some people that appeal has like faded, but... I don't know, they're both still doing really great work. Like, as a director, Ben Affleck is so kind of reliable and strong here. Like like I said, it was One Fine Morning. This is such a watchable film. That is no insult at all. It is so difficult to make a film that's this easygoing. Um, and Matt Damon's great as this kind of, like, schlubby loser. Like, 
there, there's a lot more going on in this film as well. Like I said, it's very watchable, but there's interesting layers that I don't think people have given it credit for. There's like this whole bit where Jason Bateman's character is talking about how um, he's been listening to Born in the USA, and he's like, I stopped and I was actually listening to it today, and it's not the film that I, that I thought it was. Um, and he's also, there's a bit where Matt Damon gives this speech about like, we know that you're going to be like this to Michael Jordan. And it's this brilliant moment where we as the audience know who Michael Jordan's going to be. Even if you're not a sports fan, you know Michael Jordan. And so the film kind of like reaches through the screen and holds your hand and goes like, we know too. And it kind of really allows itself to breathe and be something, I don't know, something more than a film about a shoe. <laughs> well, look, does this... Um we kind of mentioned the soundtrack. Is it is this just like a super fun, feel good eighties vibe? I mean, sort of. I mean, I'm, there are going to be certain people who don't think that it's fun and feel good. I wonder whether the issue with it not getting an audience or you know being dropped is because it's hard to know who the audience is. Um, the film was really heavily criticised for not depicting Michael Jordan. Hmm. I think people, some people, would be extremely disappointed that this isn't a Michael Jordan film. Hmm. Um, and in particular, there's been criticisms basically that his story has been whitewashed by a series of white guys um, basically do it, doing all the, the legwork, no pun intended, <laughs> um, to bring him in. And you only see like a couple of over-the-shoulder sh- shots of Michael Jordan. Uh, but I think that's necessary to tell the story of this film, which I think is, is a good, solid piece of work. Um but this isn't a film about Michael Jordan at all. I mean, it's quite clever that Michael Jordan didn't become a great basketball player because of the Air Jordans. Um, he didn't really have anything to do with the Air Jordans at all. Um, but the real hero of this film, this sort of American capitalism and American exceptionalism, sort of this idea that only, only a great American brand like Nike could do it, whereas those... those Nasty men in Germany at Adidas. They, they don't. <laughs> they don't have what it takes. Um, and I, I would say that you can consider this part of a trilogy. Like if if you want Michael Jordan, you have that the documentary The Last Dance, mm. which I think every single person on planet Earth watched during <laughs> lockdown. And then you also there was a documentary a couple of years ago called One Man and His Shoes, um, which sort of looked at the cultural legacy of the Air Jordan, so it talks a lot of Spike Lee doing his mm. commercial for it and sort of the reference to it in um, is it Do the Right Thing? Mm-hmm. Mm. Where someone stands on a shoe. And then right at the very end of the documentary, they go, oh, by the way, there's been lots of crime related to Air Jordans and people are killing each other. And then, you know, to, to steal them. And there's, there's a pop-up at the end going, Nike didn't participate in the making of this documentary. <laughs> but you, you can be sure that they participated in, um, in Air. Yes. Um, they're, they're the real heroes here. Okay, well, slam dunk for most people, potentially a little a little uh, cynicism, uh, cynical for um, Luke's taste, but um, Air is Certificate 15, and it's uh, playing at all three Cambridge cinemas. Finally, uh, let's see if Nick Cage is chewing the scenery as much as the necks of the innocent. Mr. Brentfield, welcome. I am the you will make a very good assistant. No! He's evil. We will protect you. You have the word of the most trusted institution on Earth, the Catholic Church. Ah! Renfield, 
Your sole purpose in life is to serve me. Now, let's eat. I just want a normal life again. Fairly action-drenched uh, trailer there for everyone. Uh, Nicholas Holt leads this gory comedy as notorious henchman Renfield, reimagined as the victim of a toxic relationship with his boss, Dracula. Portrayed by noted vampire th- enthusiast Nicholas Cage, or at least Dracula enthusiast Nicholas Cage. Um, comedians Aquafina and Ben Schwartz round out this campy treat. Um, Alfie, we'll come to you first. Um, does this film kind of give some fresh blood to the Dracus- Dracula legacy? Um, not really. It was kind of, I thought... It was fun, but it was kind of a generic retelling oh, no. modern day Dracula film. Um I think the closest I've seen that makes like a modern day um vampire film work is what we do in the shadows. Mm. And I feel like a lot of the best parts of this film were like jokes that kind of was reminiscent of that film, like, oh I need to be invited in things like that. And I don't know, this film's kinda of generic and it wasn't boring, but it was definitely forgettable, I think. Okay. Henry, do you, do you agree? Do you think it was a little too derivative? Uh, well, I think it, it is in certain ways. Like, from for about five minutes in, I could have told you every single plot beat where it's like, we're going to have this, and we're going to have this, and then there's going to be the moment where this happens, and then there's this happen. There's a little five-minute window where anything could happen, and then it's going to end like this. But I think there's enough charm inside the film that it kind of didn't matter for me. Um, Nick Cage is just delicious as Dracula. He is somewhere between his performances in Vampire's Kiss and Deadfall here, getting to be like... Somewhere between? Yeah. (laughs) Okay. I don't even know how you measure that. Oh, it's some... It was a barometer and a a sextant, I think. (laughs) (laughs) He is having a lot of fun. And there is this kind of, like, slapdash, like, giddy quality to the film that, like, reminded me of... And I'm sorry, Will, because I know you were saying you felt old earlier, but, like, when I saw <gasps> Kick-Ass at, at the age of about 10, and I was like, whoa! And, like, as a 10-year-old watching that film, and I should not have seen that film, but, like, that really kind of changed my life. I was like, wow, this is really cool. And I think, obviously, if you're under the age of 15, please don't go see this movie in a cinema. Mm. But I think it's the kind of film that, like, someone's going to see it at a sleepover and be like, that's the best thing I've seen in my life. Mm. <laughs> Well, look, the uh, action comedies are a tricky, a tricky balancing act. Throw in horror and on top of that, how does it, how does it all come together? Um, it doesn't. That's the answer. It doesn't come together. Oh no! <laughs> um, I mean, to call it a, a horror in any meaningful sense, it's not really. Like, there's there's a ton of gore going on, mm. but it's really leaning heavy on the action and heavy on the comedy. Um, and another pun alert: it bites off more than it can chew. Oh, you might no. say. <laughs> There's a, there's a, there's today, a ton folks. of moving. There's a ton of moving parts here. You've got you've got Dracula. You've got Renfield. You've got sort of crime families. You've got police corruption going on, and in a very brief runtime, it's ninety three minutes, which ordinarily would be a delightful thing. You feel like there's tons of stuff that it's dropping the ball on. Just one very quick point is mm-hmm. they set the film in New Orleans, which I was very excited about because it's got a sort of rich history of sort of this Louisiana voodoo style mm-hmm. thing. And you've got, you know, films like Interview with a Vampire, um, and the T V series True Blood really, really do a lot of good work with leaning into that. Yeah. Whereas here it's like they sort of forget about 15 minutes in that it's in New Orleans and it's like it just might as well be ended. Well that's where Nicolas Cage lives. 
Oh. Ah. He's like, I'm not travelling for this. Uh, well, well, this is um, it's scripted by a Rick and Morty staffer, which is kind of becoming a punchline at this point. Um, <laughs> was it kind of as sharp and subversive as that show is kind of known to be? Okay, no pun intended. It's a movie you can get your teeth into. Yep. <laughs> okay. I actually really enjoyed it. All right, it Matt, I hope you're ready. <laughs> <laughs> I really enjoyed it more than I actually should have. Um, violent in parts, funnily gory, and tongue in cheek humor. Mm-hmm. And as Alfie did say, um, it did feel like. Um, what we do in the shadows mm. but then kind of had a Tarantino-esque kind of feel to it yeah, some may disagree um, and I felt that Nicholas Holt was doing his best um, Hugh Grant early Hugh Grant impression you know you know, just you know that upper class gentleman mm. like four weddings and funeral but overall mixing gangsters clock cops a cop that wants to actually do right and the undead and you get sleeper hit oh sleeper hit that's mm. a big call um Matt, uh, Cage, in an interview, Cage said he wanted to uh, homage Christopher Lee in particular because he's a big fan of Dracula and he thinks Christopher Lee was the best one. Uh, but then he did say that they then gave him a wardrobe of all his kind of gaudy coats and hats and jewelry. Um, do you think this was an authentic kind of what Nick Cage wanted to bring or do you think this was more of a Frankenstein Dracula? I think he definitely, with his performance, got to do what he wanted to do. I mean, I'm coming at this as a, a huge Nick Cage fan. Like, I, I, I just think Nick Cage is the best thing in everything ever. I, I think when people talk about is, is Nick Cage a good actor or a bad actor, they're kind of missing the point because, as Sean Penn <laughs> said, Nick Cage isn't an actor, he's a performer. And every performance he gives is unique in some way and brilliant. And in this... I would say this is one of the top 10 Nick Cage performances of all time. Not top five, but definitely top 10. Uh, yeah, he, he's just brilliant. Whenever he's not on screen, the film just grinds to a halt. Yeah, all of the stuff about crime families and murdered sisters and police corruption, it's like, oh, whatever, I don't care. Just give me Nick Cage asking Nicholas Holt where his dinner is. <laughs> that, that's what I want. Uh, yeah, he's, he's so good in this, but the film just wastes it. It, it should have been about Nicholas Holt and Nicholas Cage's relationship through the years and sort of building up that kind of passive-aggressive codependent thing, which is referenced, but you never really get to see any of it. So, yeah, for me, that that was the big disappointment. I, I also thought the casting was quite bad in some ways. Like, Aquafina is incredibly miscast as the cop because she just looks like a child especially next to nicholas holt and they're meant to have this kind of sexual chemistry that just does not work because he's looming over her and she's <laughs> sort of this tiny kind of hunched shoulders uh, almost shrinking away from him oh so, yeah real missed opportunity for me well thank you for not saying the film ground to a nicholas holt whenever <laughs> it, it's on screen. um i mean the, the film's called Renfield. The film kind of hangs on that character. Is there enough? Does, does is there enough pathos there? Is is there enough heart to the film to care about him? I don't know if it's pathos, but like you know, we've been praising Nick Cage. Nick Holt is really good. He's kind of again one of those actors who's found his groove, which is like slimy, pathetic weirdo. You know, he did it so well in The Favorite, and he's mm. kind of hitting those beats again. And I think yeah, without those two actors, this would be like a a really rubbish film with fun gore. And I think. Yeah, those two actors really do save it. And like Matt's saying, you know, especially any scene without Nicolas Cage is, is like a bit of a waste. But even if Nicholas Holt isn't in it, there's like a few scenes where it's just kind of gang stuff or just police stuff. And those are the scenes where you're like, no, no, cut, 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 cut. Let's get this to 80 minutes. <laughs> and uh, any, any of the dissenters, have you, been, have you been convinced that this might be a cult classic going forward? 
I mean, it's entirely possible. <laughs> I mean, it, it has all... I mean, I, I agree um, with uh, comments about Nicolas Cage's performance. He is absolutely wonderful. Um, and it's a shame that he's not in it as as much as he could have been. And particularly early on in the film, he's under heavy prosthetics, <laughs> which was... I didn't think that Nicolas Cage could overact anymore, but seeing him overact covered in plastic on his face was just absolutely wonderful. And I, there's a much better film here that doesn't have a ton of shootouts and mm-hmm. gang stuff and talking about the five families. Um, I think it's, it's going to be worth watching for the, the, the core of the film, but I think there's large portions where you're sort of rolling your eyes and thinking can Nick Cage come back please <laughs> <laughs> okay well uh, if you if you're if you want to get your Nick Cage fix for the month uh, then it sounds like Renfield's definitely worth checking out um, it's certificate 15 and it's playing at the view and the light cinemas um, well sad to say that's all the time we have for today uh, do join us in two weeks time on the 29th of April where we'll be journeying with Jim Broadbent in the pilgrimage of Harold Fry uh, and we experience an unusual family dynamic in the buzzy franchise entry Evil Dead Rise uh, until then it's goodbye from our reviewers goodbye and goodbye from me the Cambridge Film Show on Cambridge 105 Radio